Can we give it up for David? Pastor David Godwin, he's actually up in the balcony. So yeah, you can give it up for Pastor David. Thank you. I mean, how many parents are thankful that he's the one discipling your students, right? He, just me in general, thankful that he's bringing up the next generation that are going to lead and carry the church. And uh, if you know David, you know he's not just a phenomenal youth pastor. He's also uh, a connoisseur of comic books. He's got a whole shelf in his office. He is a connoisseur of coffee. He brings a fresh prince, a fresh prince, <laughs> fresh press, excuse me, to staff meetings. He also, you know, has an appreciation for fresh prince. But he's a first place father. And uh, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know he's also a, a wordsmith. He is a, a prolific poet. And so last week for his award ceremony, because he is such a thoughtful leader, for the awards he gave to students, he had all these different cameos from the actors they love, from the artists they love. And that's David's favorite poet, Propaganda. So that's why he was up on the screen. So thanks again, David. Give it up for David one more time. But if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 6. It's verses 10 through 12, and then it's verse 18. And so Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus here in the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 10, as I read from the NIV, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now from here he digs into the imagery of the armor of God that Pastor Vanessa preached so powerfully on, uh, on Mother's Day. But then you get to verse 18 where it reads, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Now, we just had two commands there to pray. So let's heed that now before I go any further. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We treasure your word. We thank you that something like this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Ephesus some thousands of years ago can still speak to our church, can still speak to our culture, and can still speak to us. So Holy Spirit, use it to do a work in us, whether we're here in a pew or at home listening, Lord God. Do a work in our hearts. We give you permission. And as we saying that there's no word good enough, we know that, that you use the foolishness of preaching. So use me tonight to deliver this word, Holy Spirit, so that there can be fruit that comes eternally. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So if you are taking notes tonight, you can put down the born spirituality, and that is B-O-U-R-N-E, like the movies, the, the born <coughs> spirituality. And maybe you're asking, why is that the title we're about to see? Because we're about to play a clip from the first movie. So I was joking with somebody this week that I went from Suffolk to this campus where I basically preach in front of a movie screen. So I was like, I'm just going to show a movie clip every week and just tie it into my sermon. Right? Why not if, if the screen's right there? But I'll share that for a reason. Because in this scene from The Born Identity, if you haven't seen the movie, you're like, what does this guy have, superpowers? <clears throat> also, if you haven't seen the movie, <laughs> you want to feel old, it's like 20 years old. Almost 20 years old, right? Exactly. Made me feel old. But if you've never seen the movie, you'd be like, man, what is this guy, Daredevil? Like, is this a superpower? But this ability to absorb one's surroundings and make assessments is what trained soldiers or, or even officers would call situational awareness. And it's not just limited to officers or soldiers. Like moms have situ situational awareness. Amen? 
Right? You know, when you were a kid and you would joke that your friend's mom had eyes on the back of her head or a sixth sense. No, she just had situational awareness. It's not a superpower. It's not a sixth sense. But it's using and focusing your five senses to be aware of everything that's going on around you. And if you've watched the movies, the first adjective you would use to describe Jason Bourne probably wouldn't be sensitive. Probably not the first on your list. But you could call this trait of his sensitivity. He's being sensitive. He's using his five senses to be intentionally mindful of everything that's going on around him. And you know why I share this tonight is because for too long the church in America has been insensitive to the needs in our society that God has called us not just to recognize, but as his hands and feet to respond to, especially the ones in our nation that that we've been grappling with for over 400 years now of racism and injustice. The church has lacked sensitivity, and even if you look at history, proactively pushed back against anyone that would speak against the status quo. And as followers of Jesus, this shouldn't be the case because you read the Gospels and you realize Jesus had like some next level situational awareness. And this situational awareness is what allowed him to live the life of compassion that he led. Because even as he was constantly surrounded by crowds, nothing was lost on him. And he saw and discerned what situations he should respond to. And I use this word discernment Because it's an important note on on situational awareness. Because it's not about paying attention to everything. Situational awareness is about paying attention to the right things. And Jesus was always situationally aware, always discerning what to respond to. Like when he's he's in the sea of people and he sees Zacchaeus in the tree, he, he sees him in that moment and discerns, I need to interact with that man. Or or when he's in that mob of people that probably looked like a mosh pit, and the woman with the issue of blood brushes the hem of his garment, he was aware of it, and he responded to it. Or I believe it's Luke 5, where where you see he has next level situational awareness. Like he knew on the other side of the room what they were thinking before they ever spoke it. Now, we'll probably never walk in that kind of situational awareness, this next level supernatural situational awareness. But if I had to give us a grade, the present state in our culture, it wouldn't be good, right? We have sub-level. We have subpar situational awareness. You don't believe me, open up YouTube, not now, this week, and search texting and walking. You will get a laugh and you will get confirmation that we are terrible with situational awareness. Like my favorite is when you'll see people walking through the mall texting and they will just do a front flip into the water fountain because they have no awareness of what's going on around them because we're just locked into like the 10 or 12 square inches of our screen. And we talk about that and we laugh, but listen to this fact. Over the last decade, over 11,000 people went to the hospital with injuries related to texting and walking. Not texting and driving. That's another uh, situation together, texting and walking, right? I share this because this lack of situational awareness that we walk in doesn't just hurt us. It hurts the people around us. And I bring this up because I feel like in this season of COVID, this season of this pandemic, I don't know about you, but I've been walking with a, a heightened situational awareness and just awareness of the flesh and blood around me. Like for weeks now, I walk into like a, a restaurant and I'm counting like how many, how many heads, right? Who's wearing a mask? I'm in the grocery store shopping, and I'm trying to keep six feet distance from people to respect social distancing. I'm way more aware these days of the flesh and blood around me than I was a few months ago. 
And I know our cry is like we can't wait for everything to get back to normal, but I pray that this heightened situational awareness of our neighbor and the flesh and blood around us, I pray it would come with us. We take it with us. It would be the new normal. But as we do that, prayerfully, I want to tie it to Scripture and root it in the truth of Ephesians chapter 6. Because if you're taking notes, some would define situational awareness with just two words, orient and observe. Orient, like O-R-I-E-N-T, orient and observe. When we read Ephesians 6, we realize we've often got two major issues with our situational awareness as believers. The first is with our orientation. We forget that our fight is not against flesh and blood. And then the other is our observation. So often, like we're talking about, we ignore the flesh and blood that's around us daily. But first, let's talk about our orientation, how we orient ourselves according to Scripture. Because orienting ourselves asks the question, what am I looking for? Knowing the baseline for a situation helps us spot anomalies or things we should be paying attention to. So what's the baseline orientation for a believer? Well, Ephesians 6 gives it to us in verse 12, where Paul says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, Paul gives us this long list, but he doesn't give us this long list so we can get caught up in the details and paranoid about the forces of evil. Like, you finish the Gospels, Jesus wins. Finish your Bible, Jesus wins. We win, right? The church wins. So when we see the forces of evil mentioned by Paul in the New Testament, it's for two reasons and two reasons only. He's either reminding us that that the enemy is defeated or he's reminding us not to fall victim to the enemy's schemes and be lured into sin. One of the enemy's schemes throughout human history has long been division. We got a problem with tribalism where it's just us versus them, me versus you. We elevate ourselves over other people. And one of the fruits of his schemes is racism and the issues that flow from it and divide us and sow injustice into our society. Now, again, our orientation based on this, it's not paranoia. But Paul says in verse 18, with this in mind, be alert. And we'll get to that call to be alert in a second. But what is this call sandwiched by? calls to prayer. Because prayer orients and reorients us to reality, that we don't battle against flesh and blood. Yet when we pray, right, we should be ready to act when we ask for something, and there's work to be done, but the battling, right, we do most of that on our knees because God fights for us. Prayer orients and reorients us to reality that our battle is not against flesh and blood. And let me tell you, in this season we're in, it's pivotal, Because in this season, the way we battle is going to be one of our loudest witnesses in terms of being followers of Christ. If we act unlike Christ in the way that we confront sin in our world, who are we really following? It's not Jesus anymore. You know you've stopped following Jesus and you've started following the scripts of our culture when you see the enemy as those people over there. Those people. Whether it's people that that vote this way or that way or they protest this but they don't protest that. The issue, the, the, the evil in society and the problem is those people. If that's the case, the problem is with your perspective. Because the enemy doesn't wear flesh and blood. That's our orientation as believers. And those people, yeah, they're a target. But not to destroy or something. No, to reach and reconcile with through the blood of Christ. Again, Paul says in verse 18, with this in mind, be alert. He's saying, okay, you've oriented yourself. This is your orientation. 
Now observe. And you know, the word justice, I say that from a pulpit, it's like the word has been hijacked by our culture. It's become politicized and polarizing. When you just read this book, justice is at the heart of Scripture. You read the Old Testament, God cries out for justice again and again and again and again through his prophets throughout the Old Testament. And yet when, when somebody like myself comes up to the mic and starts talking about justice today, people are like, oh, no, 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 just preach the gospel. No, 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 don't, don't talk about that. And so the cry has been so dormant in the American church with pastors that look like myself, right, that when Fred or I come up and speak about things like justice, there are people I've got receipts that would tell us we, we preach a, a woke, broke, backwards, broken gospel. Like, just preach the gospel. And, and woke, like justice, has become like this heavily politicized word. But like justice, it's just borrowed from the Bible, right? You read in the, in the letter of Ephesians that we're reading in tonight, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul's quoting, we're not sure what. They might think it might be an old hymn. They might think it's a paraphrase of Isaiah. But in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. You know, our influence as the church has largely dwindled and died off because we've been so inward focused, so focused on me and minds getting to heaven rather than taking heaven and the kingdom of God and bringing it to earth. So we might as well be asleep at the wheel to the world. We might as well be dead to the world. And we've preached again and again, both Fred and I, as the Holy Spirit's just speaking through this pulpit about the body of Christ and what that imagery means in this season. If in these past weeks you haven't been able to feel and empathize with your black brothers and sisters that are clearly hurting, you are at best a limb of the body that's asleep and at worst disconnected entirely. Scripture doesn't suggest to be awake. No, it commands us. <laughs> Wake up. Be awake. There's no translation that says be woke, but it's probably coming. But as Paul says later in Ephesians, in our passage tonight, be alert. The question in regards to tonight, though, becomes, okay, if I'm awakened and I'm aware, what am I being alert to? Because, again, one of the keys to situational awareness, it's not about paying attention to everything. It's about paying attention with intentionality to the right things. So for the rest of our time here tonight, I just want to give three things. We are called as the body of Christ to observe so that we can build the church Christ in vision and love the world he died to save well, especially in this season. And we're going to start simple. Okay, we're going to start simple and work our way in. The first, observe flesh and blood. Now, maybe you would say, well, duh. <laughs> but, man, there was a, a video that went viral probably like three years ago now where this mom didn't exactly trust her husband uh, to watch their kid. So they did this, they, they set this thing up, and there were cameras, and uh, they set him up, it was a setup, and they, they brought him to a, a playground. And mind you, this playground was empty. Not a soul there. We're not talking about a chorus of, of shouting and crying. Just this dude and his son. And so he sits on, on the, the bench near the, the playground and he starts scrolling on his phone. And while the cameras are rolling, they had this total stranger walk up with some candy, offer it to their son, and walk away with their son. And the dad doesn't even notice. All right, we're we ready to call CPS for that kind of child negligence. But I share that because so often we, we, we live with neighbor negligence. Right? Instead of living with situational awareness, we, we neglect our neighbor who we're called to be considerate to, be sensitive to, the neighbor and flesh and blood around us that we're called to love. Like the Bible 
commands us. Jesus commands us. Right next to loving God, love your neighbor. You can't do that if you don't see and recognize your neighbor and attend to your neighbor. Jason Bourne would never be caught like that. Jesus would never be caught like that. And again, ultimately, we're not called to be like Jason Bourne. We're called to be like Jesus. So we don't size people up as possible threats. No, we we pay attention to people because God has told us that he wants to bring healing, ministry, reconciliation. Our orientation tells us that they're not our enemy, right? Our enemy doesn't wear flesh and blood. But we can't bring ministry, healing, and reconciliation if, if we don't first recognize and observe the flesh and blood that's around us every single day. Secondly, start it simple. Observe flesh and blood. The second thing, observe color. You know, thousands of people marched last Sunday in Norfolk. Shout out to everybody here from City Life that was there with us. It was beautiful. There was prayer. There was worship. Again, they say between 3,000 and 5,000 people marched through Suffolk. Right? It, was, it was powerful. It was encouraging. And yet, for all the thousands of people, there were hundreds of signs. And probably the biggest sign at the march that was in a lot of the news reports read, God doesn't see color. So for all the progress I was encouraged by, it just reminded me as a leader and as a pastor, we've got a whole lot of work to do in the church. It's like the Mother Teresa quote that gets posted often. Like, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. She, doesn't, she didn't say that. It's actually a synopsis of her Nobel Peace Prize speech. But I'm going to take the intent and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll with it. <laughs> if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. It's going to start in this family of faith. And it's going to start in our family units. And you know, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke on his family when he said in his I Have a Dream speech that I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, context for that quote, he's standing on the steps, not of a pulpit, but of the Lincoln Memorial in front of a quarter million people. So no doubt he meant this when he said this. And it sounds good and taken at face value, right? Stripped from the greater context of all that Martin Luther King said and did and preached and taught, which we love to do with Martin Luther King Jr., Taken out of context, people have time and time again inferred that MLK had a dream that society would not see color. We should be colorblind. This sounds good. Sounds catchy. And it's so commonly upheld as something to strive for. So that's why we see signs that say, well, God doesn't see color. And people will say to me often, well, I'm teaching my kids to be colorblind. And let me be honest, I cringe when I hear that. Because nobody would go for a walk at sunset tonight. You go to like the Lion's Bridge to watch the sunset, this beautiful sunset, and you would say, I'm going to choose not to see color. I'm going to be colorblind. You wouldn't do that with nature because it's, it's thinking beautiful, right? If God's creation is gorgeous. Why would we do that with the pinnacle of creation, our fellow man and woman, humanity? Like my mom can tell the story better than me, but when I was like three years old with finger paint, she was like, oh, this, this kid's got talent. There's a background and a foreground, and she wanted to foster that talent. So I grew up in the DMV, and she used to always take us to the National Mall, to the, the National Museum of Art, so that I could see some of the best pieces of art that have ever been made, masterpieces by master painters. And you know what she never told me <laughs> going into that museum? Be colorblind. Don't see color. Now, she didn't say that because nobody in their right mind would step into a museum of art with all these beautiful pieces and choose not to see color. And yet we do that with God's creation and the very, again, 
pinnacle, the masterpiece, which is mankind and humanity. And let me tell you, raising your kid to be colorblind is equally foolish. But you know why we do it? Because it's the easy way out when you're privileged and surrounded by people that look like you in a society that holds up people that look like you and celebrates people that look like you when you're surrounded by people that look like you. But I'm raising a kid that uh, he packs more melanin than most. He's from India. He is the stinking cutest kid on the planet, and I'll fight you on that. And uh, he's adopted, so it's not even an issue of pride. My genetics did not contribute to it. He's the most beautiful kid you will ever lay eyes on. You laugh. I'm serious. He's going to be here soon, and you'll, you'll be like, that kid is the cutest kid I've ever seen. That's my son. But you know what he's going to grow up and ask questions like? Why aren't there superheroes that look like me? Where are the people that look like me in all these Marvel movies? All right, where are the politicians that look like me? How come when I watch TV, there's nobody in commercials or TV shows that looks like me? You know, because for a person of color in a culture where they're the minority, the push for colorblindness implies that there's something shameful about the way God made me, so we shouldn't talk about it. From my distinctions to my identity. So let's clear up what MLK said. He didn't have a dream where all people were the same. He had a dream where all people were equal. You listen to his words. He didn't dream for society to no longer see color. He had a dream that society would no longer judge based on color because he wanted justice. You know, people that say that God doesn't see color, they often point to 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, where Samuel's among Jesse's sons, and he's, he's, he's there to anoint the next king of Israel. And what God says to Samuel in this moment is, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So take note, God doesn't say that he doesn't see their appearance. He just says, don't judge them by their appearance. He's not telling Samuel to be blind to their appearance. He's saying stop judging by it. Because in simplistic terms, judging poorly or judging with a bias is what leads to injustice. And as we just talked about, God has our heart for, in, for justice. And here's the thing. Colorblindness makes it hard to do injustice because colorblindness will make you blind to injustices. If you're colorblind, you'll be justice blind. You're going to be blind to redlining in real estate. You're going to be blind to segregation in schools and not just the segregation from years ago, but districting today. You're going to be blind to racial stereotypes. You're going to be blind to the racial wealth gap. You're going to be blind to all these issues that God wants to rec us to recognize and respond to because you're, quote, colorblind. And this incessant cry to be colorblind is no doubt one reason why the church has been so insensitive to these issues. So let's kick the habit. And look, I get it, right? For me... A white male in America, the temptation to be colorblind is always there because it enables me to become numb to racism and issues around me because it doesn't affect me. Rather than deal with the problem, I can adopt a view that acts like it's not there. But the ability to claim colorblindness, especially in, in, in seasons of heightened racial sensitivity and tension like we are in today, to be able to claim that you're colorblind is the peak of privilege. So don't compromise for what's easy. Raise your kids to see color. Teach them to be two things, color-wise and color-brave. Color-wise, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.21, I became all things to all people. And he goes on to say that he became like those, unlike the Jews, to reach and love them. So get this. He didn't just see and discern their cultural differences and distinctives. He was wise enough to let these distinctions guide his very ministry and the way he loved them. 
He noticed things like culture, color, and creed. And this wasn't racism. It was love. He so valued their culture that he adapted to it to love them. And I share that because being colorblind can cripple our ability to love our neighbor that isn't like us. Matter of fact, I'd argue it's impossible to truly love somebody until you recognize who they are fully, their life experiences, and their perspectives. Being color-wise simply recognizes that while I may not need a new perspective, I start in life with a narrow lens and I should always push to broaden it. So raise your kids to be color-wise, discerning, respecting, and responding, and raise your kids to be color-brave. Because it also says in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. Let me tell you, racism is evil. It's the fruit of darkness. So we don't sweep it under the rug in the name of peacekeeping. Like, I preach on race and racism, and people are like, that's divisive. You shouldn't do that. No, racism is divisive. I preach on it so we can bring it into the light, and the church can find healing. Sorry, I we need to be color brave. We need to raise kids that are color brave. Because if God has already spoken on an issue like racism here, then the church can't stay silent. So raise your kids to be color smart. Raise them to be color brave. Raise them to know that our differences are to be proactively celebrated, not fearfully ignored behind this cry to be colorblind. But lastly, so we got observe flesh and blood, observe color. The last note on our observing is observe with your ears, a.k.a. listen. There's a difference between hearing and listening. And everybody with kids just said amen, right? You can tell your kid to do something and they hear it, but they ain't listening. You probably said it about your spouse, but don't look at them, right? (laughs) You can hear somebody without listening. I mean, I preach these weekends, and I know there's people that are going to hear me, and they're not really listening. It happens. Hearing by definition means the process, function, or power of perceiving sound. Listening, on the other hand, by definition means to pay attention to sound, to hear something with thoughtful attention and to give consideration. Thoughtful attention and consideration. This kind of listening brings awareness, and awareness breeds empathy, and it breeds compassion, which our culture, especially people that look like me, we need in spades these days. But it doesn't come out of nowhere. You don't just pray, God, give me awareness, and it's given to you. It's going to take humbly listening. But listening is not our strong suit in the 21st century because we've been conditioned and socialized, especially through social media, that that posting a soundbite and posting comments and videos or gifts that agree with our viewpoint, that's somehow conversation. But sitting across the table from somebody or across a phone line from somebody and having an actual conversation, it's like that's archaic. You know, I asked permission to share this, but I was talking to a City Life member this week. He said, man, I need prayer. He said, because I, I came to the revelation that some people would trust a random black voice from the recesses of the internet that already agrees with their point of view than to listen to a person that they do life with and serve alongside with and build the church with every weekend. You know, we talked about this a couple weekends ago It's a gift in the church. There's not just a diversity of wisdom. There's a diversity of experiences, of of perspectives. There's black brothers and sisters in this church. There's also police officers in this church. And there's people that are both. And they've got experiences and perspectives that can add to ours. Sometimes it's not about your perspective being wrong. It's just narrow. And to love our neighbor means to, to broaden that perspective. 
It's not about right or wrong. It's about loving people better. Again, this is a gift in the church. So the question is, are you actually taking advantage of it? That you got flesh and blood brothers and sisters of all colors and all jobs and all, all, all aspects of life walking together here, or are you just running to whatever fits with your echo chamber and calling it a conversation? You know, I've been on multiple marches since last Saturday, and, and I, as I was thinking at the last one I was at, it's fitting that I show up personally and I wear a mask because I'm not there to talk. I'm there to listen. I went to one on Wednesday that was organized by a good friend, Pastor Ben Fitzgerald with Zion Community Church, and he organized this march that went down Main Street in Suffolk. And I just stood there, and at the end of the march, they prayed, they lamented, they chanted, and I just listened. And as soon as it was over, he made eye contact with me, and he made a beeline to me. He was like, man, if I knew you were here, I would have put you on the microphone. And I was like, I didn't come here to talk. I came here to listen. And if I'm going to tell the people I lead that we need to be silent and listen in this season, then I need to walk in that. Yeah, I, you know, conversation is needed, right? I've had conversations with Pastor Ben. Go back and, and watch that conversation that Emmaus Church hosted that Pastor Fred was a part of with, what, three or four pastors. Conversation is needed. But we, especially those that look like me, we got to get to listening in this season because sometimes loving your neighbor, we can make that command so complicated. We can jazz it up a hundred different directions. Sometimes loving your neighbor is as simple as listening. I get it. Silence is violence. Shout out to Cortez, right? Or Bonhoeffer said, to not speak is to speak, right? To not act is to act. But there's also a time to sit back, shut your mouth, and listen. And wisdom is knowing the difference. And a key to wisdom in this season is knowing that in this season, I need to be using my ears as much or more than I'm using my mouth. Because for those lamenting, if you know my family, you know we've been through seasons of lamenting just with health stuff. So I speak from experience here. There is a healing peace that comes when we realize that God wants to hear our lament. That we can talk to him in our pain. That sometimes our very crying, it talks in Psalms about how our sighs our prayers to him. He hears it. We can be honest. We can be raw with God. My journal is not always rated G, right? Scripture shows us that God listens and he listens well. So my question is, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, in seasons like this where a part of the body is clearly hurting, clearly lamenting, why are we so bad at it? In Psalm 116, verse 2, it says, Because God has inclined his ear unto me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. And the New Living Translation, it reads, Because he bends down to listen. Because this word inclined means like if I was going to talk to Raj or one of your, your, your small kids, I'm going to turn, bend down, and I'm going to give them my attention. It's what this word means here in Psalm 116.2. You know, sometimes there are situations where we're not called to be God's mouthpiece or his prophetic voice in that situation. We're called to be his ears, to listen. And that in and of itself can be healing, and that in and of itself can be walking and loving our neighbor. But I think here's why we're so bad at it. To ask questions and listen intently and genuinely care, it takes humility. It takes being willing to say, I don't have it all figured out. Being willing to say, my perspective is limited, and therefore it's imperfect. Being willing to lay down our pride and step into humility. You know, just as we close tonight, one last illustration, a cultural allegory or metaphor in South America for pride is a llama. Llamas. Because when you have a pack of llamas, you don't have to, to build a giant fence 
You don't need a chain link fence. You don't need anything elaborate. All you have to do to keep a pack of llamas together and trapped is to put a, a rope at the, at the height of the base of their neck. Because what llamas never do is bend their head down and go underneath that rope. They, they just refuse to bend down. So they stand tall, but they remain captive and they remain trapped. And I share that because we're going to be trapped in this cycle and cage of racism like some stinking llamas until the people of the predominant culture will be willing to not just stand and hear, but humble themselves and listen. May we be like those who, like God, don't just stand in here, but bend down and listen. May we be like those who, like Jesus, didn't say, get it together, but step down to empathize and join us in suffering. May we learn to observe with our ears in addition to our eyes, and may we be situationally aware of the flesh, of, flesh and blood that we're called to love around us every single day, color included. But man, as we close, we've talked about it before. One of the reasons this, be, this is like so elusive in the world, peace along racial lines, is because we try to work on horizontal reconciliation, as we should, right, with our, our brothers and sisters on a horizontal plane. But the foundation needs to be vertical reconciliation with God. Until he, he changes our hearts, we're never going to be able to change the world. So thank goodness that Jesus, as it says in Philippians 2, humbled himself, right, came to die for us he's the good shepherd I got good news for you you've got a good shepherd that's situationally aware right he's, he's called to watch the hundred sheep he knows when the one is gone <laughs> and if that's you tonight whether you're online or you're here tonight you've never responded to to be vertically reconciled to God and know him as father know him as king know him as somebody that loves you and pursues you like a good shepherd and man tonight online there's gonna be an opportunity to respond and here tonight you got an opportunity to respond. I'd love to pray with you. But just for everybody here, whether you've been following Christ for 10 days or 10 years, or you haven't at all, you got a good shepherd that is aware of you, that as we sang to open service, he calls you by name. He calls your name. And again, if you've never responded to that call, you need to respond to it tonight. We'd love to pray for you. But let me pray for everybody here. Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you again that it instructs us and teaches us in something so specific as everything our nation is walking to, walking through and how we need to do it as a church. And God, I pray that this idea of situational awareness and whether we've known it or not, many of us have been walking in an increased level of it in this COVID and coronavirus season. God, I pray that it we would take it with us so we can love our neighbor better. We would take it with us so we can do a better job of building the church Christ in vision and loving the world he died to save. Everybody here said, amen. Amen. Look, we love you guys. We're going to clear out to clean up in here, but if you need to hang out, have some conversations, you can do it on the way out. If you need prayer again, we'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, we'll see you next week where we will have one service and a Father's Day tailgate afterwards. We love you guys. Take care.